WVUD and UD Information Technologies present Campus Voices, conversations with University of Delaware faculty, staff, and students about their teaching, research, service projects, and other interests. To introduce today's guest, here's your host, Richard Gordon, manager of the IT Communication Group at the University of Delaware. Thank you, Jason. And joining us today on Campus Voices is Professor Alan Fox from the Philosophy Department at the University of Delaware. Alan's one of these guys that you could write a lengthy introduction to, and I have, and it's out of the, the website for the show, www.udl.edu slash campusvoices. But I'll just tell you that whenever I have a teaching initiative that I'm interested in, he's one of the first people I go talk to. And as the American Association of Philosophy Teachers pointed out, he's won just about every teaching award that he's eligible for at the University of Delaware. Thanks for coming in, Alan. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Now, one of the things I think that you really go out of the way to connect with the students, what do you, what do, you do? What are your, some of your strategies? Well, I, I do think it's really important that uh, we establish rapport in the classroom. I think it's important that the students... A, on the, the rapport that we can establish enables them to, to trust me and to relax in the classroom, but, but also it enables me to track their learning process in the classroom and, and pay attention to whether things are sinking in, whether they're not. And sometimes students are reluctant to raise their hands, but you can see that they're, they're tempted to. So if you, if you establish that kind of connection to the students and that kind of attentiveness, then I think you can really encourage the learning process. I think you're one of the few faculty on campus that some students say, hey, he learned my name. Well, certainly the, the simple, uh, well, it's not simple for everybody, and, and so I'm not pretending that the same things would work for everybody. But um, I really do think that the, the most important and preliminary thing to do to establish that kind of rapport is to call students by their name. They like hearing their name. It prompts them, it encourages them to speak up more because everybody likes to hear their name. And, uh, and also I think it's, it's nice to know that somebody knows who you are and you're not just a, a slot in a, in a binary system somewhere, you know. Now I think one of the things that I know you've talked about and, and we've got out at the show's website, we've got a link to you giving an address at the 2010 Faculty Institute about um, the way you teach. I think you really approach the classroom as a shared learning environment, don't you? It's a conversation. I mean, I like to think of it as a conversation. We're always learning all the time. I'm learning all the time, probably more about teaching than I am about the content at that point. But, you know, everybody's learning about everything all the time. Every student is an opportunity to learn how to teach the way I look at it. And uh, I really do, I come, just coming back to the, the names thing, I mean, it seems like such a little thing, but in, in the end, I think it is one of the things that students comment on the most that, you know, in some cases, and this is, sounds a little pathetic, but I'm the only person who knows their name. It also means I get asked for a lot of letters of recommendation from students that I really don't know that well because all I know is their name, but they think I know them because, because I know their name. <laughs> Yeah, I, I know what you mean. It's, it's in the class I teach. It took me five class meetings to learn everybody's name. And they're still heckling me about how long it took them, <laughs> how long it took me to learn them. Another thing that you do that a lot of uh, the faculty members here do is I think 
that you try and return their work almost immediately. Oh, it's really important. I mean, one of the things I learned in college in my psychology classes uh, about learning theory was that in any learning situation, the sooner the reinforcement follows the behavior, the more dramatic the, the reinforcement is. And so it seems to me that students produce the work, it's fresh in their mind, the sooner they get it back and look at it with, with that, with what they were thinking when they wrote it in mind, I think the more easily they'll be able to see what they did wrong and how to do better, rather than waiting weeks. And also, I, I want them to have, a, again, a, a confidence in, in their sense of their progress. There's no illusions here. So I always get papers back by the next class, and exams take a, little, take a couple of days. It's almost as if, I think you feel this way, that grading is part of the teaching conversation. Oh, absolutely. It's the feedback. And I always tell students, I'm much more interested in how the semester ends than how it begins. So if students do a lot better on a final than a midterm, I'm generally happy to count the final more heavily than the midterm, whatever the syllabus says, because I do think that the feedback you get from the papers and the exams is definitely part of the learning process. And I, that's, I'd like to encourage that. How do you get shy students to actually contribute to the class discussion? Well, uh, they not, sometimes they just don't. But uh, I, I do think that even the shy students, I think that the learning situation in the classroom, at least that kind of conversation, tends to be very exciting. And even the shy students... Sometimes you can see them kind of sitting on the edge of their seat. They really want to speak up. And that's where the kind of rapport that I'm talking about says, was that a hand? Were you about to ask a question? And they'll kind of say, well, kind of. And then, they'll, and then the next time it's a lot easier, and the next time it's a lot easier. I also do tell students, though, that coming to office hours or emailing me, I mean, the main thing is, is to get feedback from me on how their thinking is evolving. But I do think it's less selfish to ask those questions in the classroom because I think everybody will benefit from from the, the observations and the shy people tend to think that everybody's smarter than they are and, and generally that's that's not the case you know I mean generally that's it's a pretty smart classroom but I you know it's rare that somebody is so brilliant or so experienced in philosophy that everybody else needs to be intimidated by them but of course it's easy to be intimidated one of the things that you and I talked about last week was how you go about simulating the building of philosophical arguments in the classroom and you whatever the class is and you've probably taught it 5 15 20 times before yet you still manage to get the students to buy into we're all here building this argument together mm -hmm. how do you do that well this um well first of all i don't use powerpoint because i think powerpoint uh, generally tends to stiffen the conversation. It makes it clear, and again, again, it's, I'm not saying PowerPoint's bad in every situation, but if you're trying to create at least the sense that this is spontaneous, it doesn't help to have a pre-programmed set of slides that anticipates what everybody's going to say. I can probably anticipate where the conversation is going to go based on past experience, but every conversation is a little bit different. So there is, there is some spontaneity there. It's always different people in the room. They're always responding differently. And so it's not as, you know, it's not as rote as it might seem. I do tend to tell the same jokes over and over again, but they, that's because they work, you know, so. <laughs> Alleged humor. So, so, that, so I say. <laughs> now, I think one of the things that's interesting about the way you deal with the students is you, you tend to talk with them about 
developing an argument. We're not fighting. Right. We're, We're you, sparring, right. I mean, and one of the things we do the very first day of class is distinguish between fighting and sparring. Arguing isn't fighting. Uh, what we're doing is we're working out our skills. Uh, you take a shot at me, I'll take a shot at you. You do, do your defensive move, I'll do my offensive move. But we're all trying to learn, and we're not trying to bully each other, or we're not adversaries, we're allies. I know that sometimes, because the, the conversation gets critical, I challenge people. And, you know, it's surprising how, uh, to be honest with you, it's surprising how popular the course is, because I find it, I think it is extremely challenging. I mean, very rarely do I let anybody get away with anything. And so... That, but it's not mean-spirited, and it's not an attempt to bully. It, it's, um, I tell them all the time, come right back at me, or come back at me the next day, or a week from now, or ten years from now. You think about it and keep working on it. It's not like there's a final word. You keep saying the class, and what we're talking about is your very popular world religions class. Well, that's primarily what we're talking about. That's the one I think that most people have had some experience with. It's, I've taught it the most times. And it's the largest of the classes I teach, so the most number of students come through it. But the same, I teach the same way in all my classes. But uh, the world religions class is probably the one that most students take, for instance, as a general education course, because uh, it's a 200-level course, and I think all my other classes are 300-level. Why, besides the fact that it uh, fulfills a breadth requirement, why do you think that class is so popular? Why is your world religions class so popular? I well, mean, the word on the street is it's not it's not a gut class. Yeah. I mean, it's not like it's sign up for one of Richard Gordon's classes, you'll get uh, an A. Well, see, that, that's actually pretty funny because I did have a comment on one of my course evaluations that um, uh, that the the student only took the course for for an easy A and the professor in the course let her down which i thought was it's like the in the casablanca you know i came for the waters you've been misinformed there are no waters in casablanca but uh, i don't i honestly can't account completely for the success of the course like i said i think the material is well the, to me the material is utterly fascinating and we're always looking at it from unusual perspectives so it's never even when we get to the from more from what's usually the more familiar material the biblical material and so on even there, we're taking very radically different looks at it, and it's not negative looks at it. It's not, the attempt isn't to break it down. The attempt is to show how many more ways it can be understood. And I think that, honestly, I do think that that kind of opening of the mind is thrilling. I do think that's the case, and I think that when students get an inkling of that kind of perspective shift, they just really they like it. And uh, it's very freeing, especially freeing because I'm really asking them what they think. And at the beginning, I think that's that's overwhelmingly intimidating. But once they get the hang of it, I think it's incredibly liberating. One of the things that we ta we've talked about is sort of like the difference between education and training. I mean, I think that's, that's really what you're talking about. Here. Right. How to learn. I mean, basically how to master your own learning style and respond to new material and assimilate it quickly and articulate it properly. And as we talked about, you know, especially in the technical fields, but in any field, well, maybe not in ancient philosophy or anything, but uh, in most fields, the things that students are going to need to know in the workplace four or five years from now haven't been invented yet. And so you're not really teaching them what they're going to need to use in the classroom. Hopefully what you're, I mean, in the workplace, hopefully what you're teaching them is how to adapt quickly in the workplace, how to appropriate new technologies and new strategies and how to work with other people, how to articulate why they think one strategy works better than another. So, you know, that's argumentation and, and so on. And I, I 
I just think that we need to teach students how to think. And I also honestly believe that that makes people better citizens, you know, when they think for themselves. And we, we can see all too many examples on every side of the political spectrum of people who are just sheep, who are just being led around by their noses. And uh, what I'm looking for is an informed electorate, you know, people who are willing to, to ask questions and challenge challenge the sources of the information that they get you know i think these days students are extremely willing to believe anything it's not just students i mean it's the fox news phenomenon if somebody says it on tv it must it ha- all of a sudden it carries all kinds of weight and people aren't really asking about the sources of that information well i happen to believe that's probably true of all the news media in this sure. country you know you yeah. sort of have to examine everything that you hear on any of the networks absolutely and because everybody like CNN reporting that you know Obamacare was overturned, you know it's like well, they were wrong. CNN was completely wrong. So I mean everybody's so eager to hit the news cycle that the pressure is on. So I call it the Fox News phenomenon, but it really is the the, the public the, the modern media outlet phenomenon. And really, what you're talking about then is using a class like your world religion class to try and instill in students the ability to be critical thinkers. That's right. Not just for the course of that semester. That's but, exactly right. But and I, and I, if you ask again, what what in retrospect students report, they generally very often report that they become better students in their other classes. They do better in their other classes because of the kind of strategies they learn in mind. Now you've also taught that class online several mm-hmm. times and. Now joining us is our student intern, Sarah Meadows, who's taken a few online classes, and I think she has a few questions for you about your experiences with online classes and what kinds of things um, you'd suggest happen. Well, hi, Alan. Uh, I just wanted to ask, what are some good subjects uh, you find teaching online? Uh, I think online is is very well suited for certain kinds of materials. I mean, like, for instance, I happen to know that Chandra Reedy teaches a great Art of Tibet course, um, and 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 I think that for instance, art history courses or courses which involve a lot of animations or slides and things like that, where you know a good part of the course would probably be looking at a screen anyway. Uh, those kinds of things might work very well online. I do think that philosophy classes are probably better taken in person, but we also understand that not everybody can do that, and that's one of the reasons why these things are made available, but I think it takes a special effort on the part of the student to do well in those kinds of classes. What are the pitfalls of uh, teaching philosophy as an online course? Well, the rapport that we were talking about a moment ago is just not there. I mean, or at least it's, it's so much more the responsibility of the student to establish that connection so that uh, students have to be willing to come to office hours. They have to be willing to call me or contact me because they they're not just there in the class. I'm not seeing them all the time. I'm not anticipating their questions. I'm not gauging whether or not they're following the argument, which, of course, that's the most important thing. If you're not following the argument, then you're just accumulating data, and then the the people seem to think that if they can spit back the data on the test, they're going to do well, and they're not, and so they're grossly disappointed because they're, they're not finding the thread through the data. The data is all there to support the argument. So I think that, you know, it's it's a special difficulty to take a discussion-based course, especially like mine, on 
online because you're kind of watching someone else's discussion. But I do think that if you are proactive and com- you know communicate with the professor and through email and office hours or whatever extent that's possible, then I do think it's you can maybe reconstruct some part of that experience. Again, the, the contact between teacher and student I think is very important. Do students with certain traits tend to excel in these sort of online courses, especially in philosophy? Well, certainly the proactive ones. The, the ones, see, I, I think in those cases, in, in my online, in my live class, I think I'm in a position to help students discover their learning style. I think in the online class, we are relying on students who have already discovered their learning style. They know what they need to do to learn. They know the pace that they need to go at, so they don't leave everything to a weekend when you're trying to, you know, do you know three world religions in a weekend and develop half a dozen critical arguments and it's just not going to happen and so students who understand their limitations i think are going to and their strengths i think are going to do better in an on, in, in an online class like mine no it's i think that it's, it's i mean sarah's taken online classes a lot of ud students have taken online classes i mean it really seems to be a national trend mm-hmm. isn't it that more and more universities are putting more and more things online. Well, I do think that part of that is for is for the wrong reasons. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I think that part of the I, I think there is a place for online classes. When I I first started teaching online, it's when it wasn't online. It was called the Focus Program. I'm sure you remember this. It was all just basically videotaped in the classroom, and then those videotapes were sent out to remote locations where groups of people would take the course at once. In particular, this is when they started off the, the uh, BRN, the Bachelors of Registered Nurses mm-hmm. program, and RNs could take a few more liberal arts courses and get the BRN. So you, we would send these tapes to a hospital, and 12 nurses would sit around on their lunch hour and watch these videos and write the papers and send them to me. That was, that was a valid purpose, I thought, and especially since there was a group setting. They were watching them in a group and talking amongst themselves but also because they had no option. They, they had to do it this way. They couldn't come to class to do it, to campus to do it. On the other hand, I think increasingly these things are being marketed to students who are working 60 hours a week and taking 17 credits. And what I tell my students, um, my, online, my online course takes at least two or three hours a day. That's, you know, that's a lot between watching the things, reading the materials, writing the papers, communicating with me, thinking about it. That's, on the average, that's a lot of time and it's not going to fit so i do think that maybe the marketing of this should should make it clear to students who are trying to squeeze these things into complicated schedules that this is not necessarily the easy way to take the class and i think sometimes online students think that that's this is going to be the easy way to do it and again as we talked about a moment ago i think it's the harder way to do it because there's so much burden much more burden on you to reach out and do what's necessary, and you're not being cushioned and encouraged the way I think I tried to in the classroom. I'm so, this is sort of my off-the-wall way of thinking about it. I mean, to me, seeing this national trend and seeing all these different universities and colleges doing more and more online, it sort of reminds me of when I was a kid and educational TV mm-hmm. was new. And, right. it, you know, it's, it's, it's like there's this repository of, instead of it just being a library of books, it's now this... There's all this stuff, all these lectures um, that are out there. I don't, I don't know how successful. I mean, we in IT can be in helping faculty create that um, 
interactive experience yeah. that, that, that's needed to really make online learning. I mean, uh, there's and there's different kinds of online learning too. Because, for instance, there's not, there's the kind of live online learning, where like Second Life or something like that, where live streamed, where people are basically interacting live, even at remote locations, and that's online. But I think you know the pre-programmed, pre-packaged, where you're watching somebody else's class, that's a different kind of thing. And again, um, I, I have I have been contacted. There are there are companies like the Great Courses and you know, that record lectures and sell them and so on. And I've been contacted by those people, but I've been very reluctant to do that because I, I really think I'm much more effective live. And so uh, I would always, if a student comes to me and asks me, should I take the course online or live? I mean, there's, there's no, if, there's a, if there's a choice, then it's a no-brainer. One of the things that's starting to happen, I think, in the um, online learning communities, they're starting to see other problems popping up. I mean, People are even cheating, plagiarizing oh, mm-hmm. in online courses that they're taking just to take. I mean, they right. don't count for any certificate programs. I mean, it's it's an it's the temptation is overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, you're sitting there in your room, you have access to everything that you're not supposed to have access to. So that's another. Of course, that's another difficulty is uh, the, the 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 real trajectory of learning. I think is not as crisp. In, in that kind of situation where you really are, as a teacher, you really feel like you're taking somebody on a journey, but if their attention is wandering, then they're, they're going to they're gonna drift off the path from time to time, and they're not going to follow you. They're not going to know where you're going. Now, there are some applications of the online learning where I think it works very well. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, doing some of the lecture kind of material before students go into a lab situation. Sure. Right. I think, uh, I, you know, that's, that's how I've always used the technology, which is as a support for learning. And I think you and I have often talked about the fact that, you know, the, the difficult, the danger is that faculty use technology instead of teaching and, and forget that the technology is really always and only there to support the teaching. I mean, really, we are the teachers, not the technology. You are listening to Campus Voices here on WVUD and WVUD HD1 in Newark. And our guest today is Professor Alan Fox from the Philosophy Department. And I'm just talking, give him a chance to take a sip of his coffee and oil his pipes up as we're going to switch gears now and talk a little bit about sort of the subject matter mm. of your World Religions course. Sure. Um, in a class I teach, um, I sometimes will, you know, mock that bracelet that evangelicals sell, you know, the WW, as I say, WWJMBCPD bracelet. You, know. <laughs> you lost what, me there. <laughs> what would Jesus, Moses, Muhammad, <laughs> the Buddha, the prophet, right. you know, what would he do? It's, um, why is it important for students on our campus or, or people all around the world to really learn more about the religious traditions of people all across the globe? Well, I mean, to some extent, it's it's clear that, look around the world, so many of the major confrontations that we're having, especially with the Middle East, are over complete ignorance over the history of religion, uh, complete fabrication of the most recent history of religion. I mean, people are completely reconstructing their own histories all the time, and I'm everybody. And the more, the more 
I mean, so there are American students who are completely misinformed about Islam. But I also participate in a program called the MEPI program, which brings Middle Eastern students here over the summer, and they take some classes here. And they have gross misconceptions about uh, Christianity and American religion and Judaism. And so everybody's operating on the basis of just gross misunderstandings. And so every and so everybody's looking at everybody as though, oh, this is a guy who cuts off the heads of babies for fun. And really, I mean, if you look at the details of things, really the histories of these things are so intertwined. The messages are so similar. The 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 and I I know that when I say that, I'm going to get angry letters from people telling me, how dare you say that these things are similar? But that just again is an indication of the ignorance of people. So I think it really in this global society, this global community, we really absolutely need to be more informed about what everybody really is saying and about what our own traditions have been saying, rather than just taking it as you know whatever we've been told. Because there's so many varieties of every tradition. And what we're really striving here is to show the subtlety here, the 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 the, the sophisticated distinctions that can be made when we try to when we overlook or or just sidestep the the gross simplif- oversimplifications, the caricatures, the the it's just it's ridiculous that sometimes the kinds of oversimplified misrepresentations that's just it's offensive to me and uh you know it's so it's really a mission to me to get people to have a little bit more if not even if at the end of the course we don't understand everybody perfectly we don't all hold hands and sing kumbaya at least we're in a position (laughs) to ask critical questions when people say i'm a christian well what kind of christian what does that mean to you what how does that inform your behavior and your values and your attitudes what of what jesus said informs what you're what you're doing now or Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or whoever. So, um, you know, it seems to me as a as a guy with a Ph.D. in religion, somebody says to me, I'm a Christian or a Hindu or a Jew, my first question is, what does that mean to you? I mean, I have no idea what that means to an individual. So I think teaching that kind of appreciation for subtlety, I think, is uh, is really important, to, and especially when it comes to religion where... It's not just, these aren't just words that people are just kind of tossing about. These are words that people are willing to die and kill over. I don't think this is an ivory tower concern. I think this is a very concrete and practical issue. It is practical. I mean, because one of the things that I think is pretty important is that every society needs to learn, now that we're in a global economy with global communication, you've got to, got to accept that this is right. a global world. I mean, yeah. it, it's... It's a pluralistic world. It's pluralistic. I think that's a, that's the more technical term. It means is, is that we have to learn to understand that there are lots of different views on everything. Even among Christians, there are lots of different forms. Jews, Hindus, Muslims. I was in Egypt a couple of years ago, and we met with a number of leaders of like eight different Muslim groups. And what I learned there was that none of them agreed with each other about anything. And so this idea of this monolithic Islam that's trying to take over the world, I think there's more conflict within Islam than between Islam and the West. But but we don't notice that. We don't pay attention to that. And I think we we need to be more sensitive to those things. We've got just about a minute left. Do you want to there's something we talked about last week I think is a, an important closing point for you to make it. That is the role of tolerance and cultural oh, yeah, diversity. Tolerance. Cultural diversity and 
making a stronger society. Well, that's the, that's the message in the MEPI class, and I think that's the message in all my classes, is with tolerance, which I understand in a structural sense as the ability to withstand stress without losing structural integrity, without collapsing. So everything, everything in nature, everything needs to have some degree of tolerance, or else it'll, not, it'll fall down as soon as there's the least bit of pressure. So w- tolerance, though, really doesn't mean agreeing with everybody. It means agreeing to disagree, and it means disagreeing without hating each other. And I think that's the most important thing that I hope to get out of the kind of argument that we, the civil argument that we have in my class, that we can disagree without hating. Thank you so much for coming in, Alan. Pleasure. We've been talking with Alan Fox from the Philosophy Department here on WVUD. Thanks for listening to Campus Voices, a collaboration between WVUD, the broadcast voice of the University of Delaware, and UD Information Technologies. The views expressed on this program are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official views or policies of WVUD, UD Information Technologies, or the University of Delaware. For more information about Campus Voices and to find archive copies of this and other episodes, visit our website, Using all lowercase letters, go to www.udel.edu slash campusvoices. We invite you to tune in every Thursday morning at 8.30 for Campus Voices on 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1, Newark, or online at wvud.org. You're listening to WVUD and WVD HD1, Newark.